0: Okay, so I invite all of you to join me in reading today's word from Genesis chapter 32, verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh.
1: Thank you, Jackie. I know you guys have been really interested to know why Jewish people don't eat the sinew of the hip, but now you know. Welcome again, everyone. My name is Steve. I'm the associate pastor here at Regen, and just really glad that you're here as we begin a new month, the month of August. Can you believe it's August already? I feel like the summer has gone by really fast. We're just one week away from being done with this Genesis series, which means... We're also a week away from Albert and Katie Lee coming back to us from their sabbatical. So next Sunday, we'll wrap up Genesis, and then the week after that, August 21st, they will be back with us. Albert will be back here in the pulpit, and I think that's a really uh, exciting thing that we can be looking forward to. And I know many of you have been praying for them during this season of sabbatical, and uh, I'm grateful for that. I'm sure they're super grateful For that, And I would just encourage you guys to continue praying over these next couple weeks, and in particular, pray for their transition back to, quote-unquote, regular life, right? As they get back into the grind and back into the rhythm of life here at Regen, so you can be thinking and praying for them here over the next couple of weeks. And speaking of that, let's do that. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into the book of Genesis. Father, this morning we do uh, lift up Albert and Katie and their girls. We ask that these last couple weeks, even days of this season of rest that they've been able to have would be good, would be fruitful, that they would enjoy it and uh, and kind of suck up these last moments together uh, before transitioning back to the grind, back to the rhythm of ministry and leading this church. We pray for that season of transition that it would go as smoothly as it possibly could. Pray for us as a community, God, that you would continue to give us grace, and in particular grace to help Albert and Katie in this transition back to life here. Now, God, we pray as we turn our attention to scripture, that you would soften our hearts, that you would speak to us this morning as we dive into some deeper waters, God, that you would stir something in us, that you would help us to take another step closer to you this morning. So speak to us now, God, through the story of Jacob. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, it's been said that if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood, don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Let me say that again. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them work and tasks, but teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. What do you long for? What do you hope for? Maybe another way of saying it is, what are your desires? What do you desire? Desire is not something we talk about a lot in church for a variety of reasons. I think many people feel like talking about our desires is too arbitrary or whimsical or it feels like we're too focused on ourselves and not focused enough on God. But one of the first questions that Jesus asks, Jesus who is God in the flesh One of the first questions he asks some of his would-be disciples is this question, what do you want? What do you want? James Smith wrote a little book called You Are What You Love. This book is my top book recommendation for 2016. If you're going to read any book, read this one. Here's what he says about this question. What do you want? That is the question. It is the first, last, and most fundamental question Of Christian discipleship. So what do you really want? Maybe right now you just want this service to be over so you can go get your cup of coffee or go to brunch or whatever the next thing is in your day. (laughs) Maybe you're going through something really difficult right now and all you want is just to make it through the day, make it through the week, right? Just kind of survival. Maybe there's something more that you're wanting, a better job, a bigger house, better relationships, Whatever that is, what is it that you want? Are you able to name your desires? I want you to hold on to that question for a minute as we review a little bit of where we've been, because we're right in the middle of the story of this guy named Jacob, whose story in so many ways illustrates the power of desire. Not just the power of desire, but also I think why we sometimes fear our desires. We started this last week, and we saw that Jacob is embroiled in a sibling rivalry. Pretty much right from the moment of conception, he and his twin brother Esau are rivals. They struggle with each other in the womb, and they struggle with each other out of the womb as well. They struggle with the favoritism of their parents. Remember, Rebecca, the mom, loves Jacob. Isaac, the father, loves Esau. And they struggle with their desires. Esau indulges his sort of physical, in-the-moment desires, right, at the expense of his birthright. He trades his birthright for a bowl of soup. Jacob's desire is for his brother's spot in the family, and his name literally means to grasp the heel. Remember, that's how he comes out of the womb, holding on to Esau's foot. But his name also can mean deceiver or trickster, and that's the identity that he takes on. He tricks Esau into trading his birthright. He deceives his father and steals the firstborn blessing. And there's this huge conflict between them, obviously, as a result of all of that. It's a conflict that turns into death threats. And so that's where we ended last week. Jacob decides to flee, and his mom sets up an opportunity for him to hang out with his uncle. And so Jacob leaves the family, and Esau is is in this sort of murderous rage wanting to kill his brother. And so that's actually where we're going to pick up the story. So if you still have your Bible open, flip back to Genesis chapter 28. And we're going to look at verse 10 here, where it says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. Again, Jacob's on the run, and Haran is where his uncle Laban lives. That's where he's ultimately headed. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. If you've been around for this series, this should be a very familiar sounding language, right? Verse 15, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. So again, Jacob, on the run, running from his brother who wants to kill him, has this crazy dream, this dream that involves a ladder or a stairway. It's connecting earth to heaven. There's angels going up and down the stairway. God is at the top of it, and Led Zeppelin is playing in the background. (laughs) I'm glad you guys got that. I was like, I don't know if anybody will know what I'm talking about, but... Anyway, commentators have long struggled to make sense of this scene. What is going on here, this stairway to heaven? But there are two really basic fundamental things that we need to see that take place right here. So the first is this. To this point in the story, Jacob has been entirely motivated by material things by his birthright and blessings, by taking over the firstborn status in the family, by building his retirement portfolio, if you will. He's been driven by material things. And so here, for the first time, he begins to have a sense that there's more to this world than the material. There's this whole other reality, a spiritual reality. This is his first taste of the sea, if you will. Now, second, and even more important, Jacob hears directly from God for the first time. God reveals himself to Jacob as Yahweh. And this is an interesting thing, because if you're familiar with the Old Testament story, we tend to think of this revelation of the name of God as Yahweh as something that happens with Moses and the burning bush. And certainly there's a significant thing that happens there in Exodus chapter 3, but here God reveals himself to Jacob as Yahweh. And then for the third generation in a row, Yahweh reiterates this promise of land and seed. Okay, This promise of this territory that will belong to this family and then descendants too numerous to count. And part of this promise, of course, part of this blessing is it's not just for the family. The family is blessed, but the family is blessed to be a blessing to the other families of the earth. And then the final part of this revelation is God once again reiterating, as he said to Abraham, as he said to Isaac, I will do this. I am going to do this. I promise. I will. I will. I will. These I will statements over and over again. So Jacob's vision for what life is all about is finally starting to expand. He's waking up to this new reality. He responds to all of this with a sentence that has a very rich history in both the Jewish and Christian faith, there's whole books written about just this one verse: "Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it." Again, there's probably a lot that we could say about that, but here it's interesting because the trickster, the deceiver, the liar, is waking up, both literally and metaphorically, to the ultimate truth, the ultimate reality of the universe. Now, like a lot of people who have a very intense first encounter with God, Jacob makes a couple of mistakes here. He immediately makes the mistake of over-associating the physical place with God's presence. Look at verse 17. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? I love that, right? (laughs) You have this crazy dream, the stairway to heaven, Led Zeppelin is playing. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it and he called the name of that place Bethel house of God. Now again this sort of thing happens a lot with people who have an intense first encounter first spiritual encounter. You see this with folks who go on short-term mission trip. This has certainly happened to me, but you have that experience where you go somewhere and you see God move in all these amazing ways. And then you come back home, right? And it's just like, ugh, normal, boring. The boss wants 12 things due by Friday. And it's kind of like, oh man, God was over there in that place. right? But he's not here with me in this particular moment. So Jacob over-associates the physical place with God's presence. And then look at what he does next. He reverts right back to his scheming ways. He starts bargaining with God. Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. I'm sure God was super impressed by that part of the deal, right? <laughs> and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. The key word there, of course, is if. If God does all this stuff for me, provides for my needs, takes care of me, gives me bread to eat, makes me my family peaceful once again, then then he will be my God and I'll do some stuff for him. I'll even kick in 10%. (laughs) Now, we all do this, right? We all strike these kinds of bargains with God. If God does this for me, if God comes through for me in this way, then I will do this. We do this kind of stuff all the time. The if tells us, That Jacob, even though he has this new sense of more, even though he's awakening to this spiritual reality in the world, even though he's becoming more aware of God's presence, he doesn't trust him yet. He doesn't trust him yet. And this is especially interesting because Jacob is, in many ways, a self-made man, right? He's wriggled his way into a large inheritance, this prominent role in his family, and he's done it primarily on his smarts. And his cunning and a little bit of help from his mom. But mostly he's been about relying on himself. And then here comes God saying, I am going to do this for you. I got this. I will do this. I will, I will, I will. And this brings us right to the heart of the struggle in Jacob's life, in Jacob's story. It's this struggle of trust. Who is he going to trust? Who is he going to rely on? Is he going to continue to rely on himself? Or will he rely on Yahweh, who makes these incredible promises? So let's see what happens next. Look at Genesis chapter 29. Jacob continues on his journey. He spots a well near his uncle's land, and he sees that there are some shepherds there watering their sheep, and so he approaches them to ask if they know where his uncle is. How can he find his uncle Laban? Well, they know where he is, and they also point out that one of his daughters is on Her way there at that particular moment. While he was still talking to them, this is verse 9. Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. Now, this is a total side note, but I think it's an interesting thing to point out. Shepherding, from what we understand from historical records and even from scripture itself, is a male dominated profession. And so, Rachel is actually the only female shepherd mentioned in the Bible. So here is a woman who is working in a man's world, and by all accounts, as you read through the story, she's doing fairly well, running her father's business. Now, it's foolish to draw too much from one verse, to draw a large conclusion from any particular one verse, but a lot of times, Scripture is criticized for being oppressive to women or being regressive in some way in its view of women. And yet, when you look at the full Breadth of scripture. When you look at the full picture that it presents, you see these kinds of things again and again and again. These kind of typical male-female roles turned upside down. And this is another great example of that, Rachel the shepherd. Now, back to the story. Verse 10, When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of his uncle Laban and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Now, when you do... A deep study of the Hebrew here, and you kind of break down the grammar and all this kind of stuff, and you look at what this means. Here's the literal translation of verse 10. Jacob thought Rachel was a babe and tries to impress her with his feats of strength. That's really what it says in the Hebrew. with the seminary to learn how to do that. Jacob now, though, is much more interested in being with Laban, right? This whole like running away from Esau is turning out to look pretty good for him. And we begin to see his desires shift here from these material pursuits to relational pursuits. Jacob settles into life on Laban's land, and after Jacob had stayed with Laban for a whole month, Laban says to him, Hey, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, let's be honest here. We've all done weird stuff for relationships, right? (laughs) We've all changed how we dress or how we talk. We've pretended to like things that we don't really like. We put ourselves in odd situations to impress someone, but work for seven years for free? That's way up there. (laughs) What I think this shows us, again, is Jacob's disordered desires. Verse 20 informs us that Jacob is so twitterpated, he's so head over heels for Rachel that these seven years go by like a few days. And then look at verse 21. Jacob says, after the seven years is up, give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to make love to her. Not very subtle, right? <laughs> I don't know. I, just, I think of because I'm a dad of a daughter. I just think of being Laban in that moment and like, come on, dude. <laughs> don't talk to me like that. <clears throat> Laban throws a wedding party, and when the evening came, he took, watch this, his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. Whoops. <laughs> Now, this is an important part of the story because even though there may have been a big ceremony and a big party, there may have been vows that were exchanged, it is this moment, this consummation moment, that is the official binding covenantal moment of marriage. And so again, even though Jacob may have gone through all the ceremony with Rachel, he is now married very much to Leah. When morning came, there was Leah. Surprise! So Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, right? Like, isn't, wasn't that our agreement that we made seven years ago? And then look at this. Why have you deceived me? Why have you deceived me? The deceiver has been deceived. The playa got played. <laughs> <laughs> so, what does he do? He doubles down and is like, okay, let's go again. Seven more years. And so he works seven more years, and he's finally able to marry Rachel. And then he lives happily ever after, right? No, because among other things, this is an awkward situation, right? He's married to two sisters, and then in this incredible move, he reflects the favoritism that he learned from his parents. Look at verse 30. Jacob made love to Rachel also, but his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. You can imagine the dynamics of that situation. Now, it's interesting. This leads God to show compassion towards Leah. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Now, that's great. God loves Leah and shows compassion to her, but now you can imagine this whole other situation, right? Rachel becomes very jealous over the fact that Leah not only produces one, but six children. Well, she remains childless. And so this awkward situation just gets more awkward. The tension continues to build. But finally, God does enable Rachel to conceive. Genesis 30, 22. Now Jacob finally has everything that he wants, right? He's got his father's inheritance and blessing. He's got two wives. He's got a bunch of kids. But no, he is still restless. He's still searching for something so now we come to Genesis 32 to this passage that Jackie read for us a few moments ago now between here and where we're leaving off there's a couple of important things that happen there's a whole other kind of funny funny scene that takes place Jacob returns to his deceiving ways he cons Laban for the first time and as a result prospers greatly And then God comes to Jacob and says, hey, it's time for you to go back to your homeland, back to the land that I've promised to you and to your descendants. So Jacob and his crew, they get up in the middle of the night and they leave. They leave in the middle of the night because, surprise, Jacob and Laban are not on good terms. So they sneak out in the middle of the night. And in the middle of sneaking out, Rachel steals Laban's idols, which is not wise for a variety of reasons. Laban wakes up in the morning, sees that they're gone, and then not only sees that they're gone, sees that his idols are missing, and so he chases them down. And there's this sort of funny face-off between these two con men, right? These two liars. Jacob has no idea that Rachel has stolen the idols, and Laban is accusing him of stealing them. He's like, no, I didn't. And he's like, yes, you did. And it's actually Rachel who gets them out of this situation. She has a deception of her own, a con of her own that she uses, to get them out of that. And remarkably, Laban and Jacob part ways peacefully. The beginning of Genesis 32 starts with Jacob preparing to meet his brother Esau, who he assumes all these years later still wants to kill him. So here's where we do need to give Jacob a little bit of credit. He is being faithful to God's command. He is taking this risk to return to his homeland, even though it may cost him his life. So all of that, then, is the backdrop to this scene. So Genesis 32, verse 22. That same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. He touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. This is very sparse storytelling here. There's not a lot of details. There's not a lot of background. We don't know the motivation of these particular characters. What we do know is Jacob is alone. He wrestles someone. They wrestle for a long time. No one really wins. But this mystery man does some sort of kung fu punch to the hip. And Jacob walks away with this limp, right, with this hip injury. Here's what happens next. Then he said, this is the mystery guy speaking, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Now many interpreters of this passage are quick to name this mystery man as God, and there's good reason for that. I believe that to be true. I think one of the big clues is that Jacob says, I've seen God face to face. But if that's true, it raises a couple of interesting questions, right? Why is it difficult for God to prevail against Jacob? Why does he ask Jacob to let him go? Why would God limit himself in this way? We'll get to that in a minute, but one of the other big clues that this is in fact the Lord is that Jacob asks him for this blessing. A superior always blesses Jacob an inferior and so Jacob is beginning to sense that what he really wants his deepest desires are able to be met here in this wrestling match this validation that he's been seeking it can be found with this mystery man and again here we get to the real heart of the Jacob story After so much deception, after spending so many years pursuing other desires, after pretending to be someone else, when God asks Jacob the question, what is your name, he's finally honest. Remember last week, that scene where Jacob comes in to steal the blessing, Isaac says, who's here, who's with me? And Jacob says, I am Esau. But here, as he wrestles with God, He's able to say, I am Jacob. Finally, gets real. Real about his true ultimate desires. I want to be blessed. And real about himself. I am Jacob. I'm the liar. I'm the trickster. I'm the deceiver. And what happens? Transformation. God changes his name from Jacob to Israel, meaning he struggles with God. That struggle obviously plays out dramatically here in this wrestling scene, but it's really been going on Jacob's whole life. This struggle between self-reliance and God-reliance. Mostly Jacob has trusted himself, relied on himself, right? His wits, his schemes to get the things that he wanted, his wealth and his wives. But here, in this wrestling match, in this Desire to be blessed by God, not by his father, not by his accomplishments, but by Yahweh. It's here that he experiences God in a profound way and he discovers the true object of his longing. There's a couple of places where we see grace in this story. The first is that God wrestles with him. This goes back to that question why would God limit himself in this way? God engages him. God does not wipe him out. God lovingly limits himself so that Jacob can work this stuff out. And there's also grace in that Jacob is left here with a limp, and that might seem counterintuitive, but this limp will remind him day in and day out that he cannot rely on himself, can't rely on his own strength, that there's more to this world than the material, and that wrestling with God, this real, authentic encounter with Yahweh, it leaves you different than you were before. Doesn't leave you perfect, though. Israel still has a long way to go. He'll deceive Esau again shortly after this. He'll show favoritism towards the sons that Rachel produces over the sons of Leah. This process is not done. The wrestling match isn't over just because the sun has come up, but he is different. He is a changed man. There's a new direction now for his desires because of this honest assessment of what he really wants. And it's interesting to me that out of all these sort of big three characters that we've seen here, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's Jacob that becomes the namesake for the people that come after him, right? the vehicle for blessing, the family that will be a blessing to all the other families of the earth takes their name from Israel because they will struggle with God too. They'll struggle between self-reliance and God-reliance. They will struggle with their desires. Jacob's story is Israel's story in a nutshell. And if we're being honest, Jacob's story is our story too. Now this is kind of a hard thing to admit. Maybe this is just me, but Jacob is one of the least likable characters in all of Scripture. (laughs) So the question is, what do we do with this? What do we do with Jacob's story, who is clearly very important to the bigger picture of what God is doing, right? Well, I think, first of all, Jacob is an example that God uses everybody. (laughs) God uses all kinds of people. Jacob, to me, is a lot like the people Jesus calls to be his first disciples, right? Not necessarily the people you would pick first, not the folks with the best resumes. Sometimes we think of that as sort of a Jesus New Testament phenomenon, but that is always how God works. God has always used anyone to fulfill his purposes. Second, we see God's gentle grace all over this story. God appears to Jacob in these two really dramatic, incredible ways. And then he kind of recedes into the background and the rest of the story, but his fingerprints are all over this. God is there behind the scenes taking care of Esau. God is there behind the scenes blessing Leah when she is overlooked. God is there behind the scenes helping all these different women conceive after years of barrenness. And God is there redeeming the mess that Jacob makes over and over And over again. And even in these two dramatic appearances that God makes in the story, we still see his gentle grace here. He allows Jacob to bargain with them, to make this silly vow, and he wrestles with them. God limits himself in order to be with Jacob to walk with him through this process of discovering what he really desires and where he can ultimately find the answer to his restlessness. St. Augustine wrote, Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And you here, of course, refers to God. I don't know if there's a character in Scripture that captures that idea better than Jacob. And then last but not least, this is, I think, one of the most interesting parts of the story. If Jacob does have a redeeming quality, it's that ultimately he's an example of the importance of being honest. Ironically, the deceiver is most commendable for his honesty. Jacob seeks validation in all kinds of places, but it is when he can finally be honest with himself and with God that he meets God in this unique way. And again, I love the transformation in his name. He struggles with God because how many of us struggle with God? How many of us struggle with naming our true desires? How many of us seek validation in all kinds of places that leave us tired and exhausted? How many of us resonate with that deep restlessness that Jacob has? Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's the gospel. Jesus does the work for us. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So let's end where we began. What do you want? What are your deepest desires? What are you restless for? What are you pursuing? Have you found rest? Have you found true validation? What do you want? Let's pray. Father, thanks again for this story of Jacob. These Old Testament characters are just so raw. And it's difficult sometimes even to make them look good. But I don't know that that's the point, God. I think the point is that your grace is present in the midst of these stories, in the midst of the lives of these characters. No matter what they do, no matter how much they blow it or get off track, you are still there with them. So God, this morning as we ponder the story of Jacob, may we also think deeply about what it is that we really, truly, actually want. We seek and pursue all kinds of different things, and yet Scripture again and again shows and even tells us that our deepest longings can only be satisfied in you. So Father, I pray for those of us here this morning who are tired because we've been pursuing all kinds of other things, God, that we would begin to end those pursuits and begin to seek you first. I pray for those this morning who have maybe never made that step, never taken that step, that they would take that step even now, even this morning, God, to begin putting their trust in you, begin naming their deepest desire as your validation, your blessing in their life. And God, we're so grateful for the gentle grace that you show, not just to Jacob, but to each and every one of us. As you call us back to you, back to relationship with you, may we know and experience your grace in our lives this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.